Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Anxiety Recovery Podcast. I have Kim Vapni here, and we're going to talk all about pelvic floor health, you know, physical pelvic floor, you know, pelvic floor health in general, and really the correlation between anxiety, stress, and pelvic floor dysfunction in between everything with childbirth, with you know, postmenopausal women and just everything that goes on with pelvic floor health. So Kim, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little more about yourself. Thank you. I appreciate you having me very much and, and helping increase awareness. Um, my name is Kim Bobney. I'm known as the vagina coach and I use fitness and lifestyle education to help women prevent and overcome pelvic floor challenges like incontinence and prolapse being the two most common, but Pelvic pain is another huge part of pelvic health, and uh, and that's something that I certainly help people with as well. And I got into this line of work through, kind of like, not knowing anything about pelvic floor when I was younger. I knew that my mom had some challenges, and I had made a very bold statement that I was never going to have children. Um, and that sort of that was me growing up. And then when I married my husband and decided I did want to start a family. I was really determined to have a different story than my mom. So she had had episiotomy births and she had incontinence that she had surgery for. She had a hysterectomy for heavy bleeding. Um, she had chronic back pain. She had a tummy that wouldn't flatten. So it was kind of like this picture that was painted of not being pregnancy and birth, not being super friendly for the body. And so that was sort of what I was trying to avoid. And I really didn't know a lot other than my midwives had recommended a biofeedback device to me called the EpiNo, which EpiNo stands for no episiotomy. And it's a product designed to help people connect with their pelvic floor through biofeedback, meaning we can see what's happening with the muscles, even if we can't actually see the muscles, you know, we can't go to the mirror and flex. Right. Well, we're not really flexing our vagina, but the muscles that are in our pelvic floor, we don't go and flex them. Right. Um, we could, but we wouldn't really see much happening. And so the biofeedback is helpful to see what's happening with these muscles, even if we can't actually physically see, or sometimes even feel them because not everybody is, is aware of how to do it. So anyway, I, I use this product, had a great experience. And I thought, how is it that not everybody is using this for birth preparation? And I contacted the company. They're from Germany. I'm in Canada and I became a Canadian distributor and it was really very small. It was supposed to just be kind of this little side hustle. It was not, I didn't intend it to be a business per se, but, um, but here we are 19 years later and it definitely <laughs> took lots of twists and turns along the way. And, and uh, I can say that I'm absolutely in love with what I do and very passionate about it uh, remain. So, and yeah, and it took me not just from the pregnancy and postpartum side, but also really recognizing that pelvic health is a, a lifelong conversation that we all deserve to, to hear. Yes, I love that. It's so it's so fun hearing people's stories about, you know, what made them really passionate about, you know, what they did, like what they do and seeing how passionate you are and just showing like, this is my mom's experience. I don't want that for myself. And then discovering this device that's super freaking amazing and so cool that like, <laughs> You could you could literally see like biofeedback what's going on with your pelvic floor. Um, that's so fascinating. Could you share a little bit about you know what signs do you see in women that like you could you could see um, you know if their pelvic floor is tight or like if it's too loose like what would that look like? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, so the pelvic floor is a group of muscles that close off the base of our pelvis. And I'm a I'm a personal trainer really by trade. So that's my profession. And I, when I got into this line of work was saying, well, this is a group of muscles that have slow twitch and fast twitch fibers, just like our bicep or our quadricep or hamstring. Like it's, it's the same. Uh, the importance, I would say, I would argue that the pelvic floor is one of the most important muscle groups of the body. Yet in my personal training certifications, any of the fitness education I did, never once was the pelvic floor ever talked about. So I learned about all the other muscles in the body, but not about the pelvic floor. And so when we, when we think about pelvic floor, we think about terms like, as you just said, tight or loose, and it's, it's not necessarily, it may be the sensations that somebody may have. They may feel more laxity. They may feel more vulnerable maybe than they used to, or they may feel, uh, tension. They may feel like there's. Uh, pain. So tension is a, is a very common contributor to pain. And if we think about the rest of our body, even so if like I very commonly and very often associate or kind of draw a correlation between our, our trapezius, our, our neck and our shoulders, because we're now, you know, we've evolved into this population that spends a lot of time with things in front of us, a computer, a phone, we're often hunched over, we're often typing, we're driving, we're, so we are in this sort of this forward head rounded posture or rounded shoulder posture that often contributes to tension. Yeah. Now you're starting to shift up. You know, like everybody starts to shift their posture when they hear our, this conversation. And so we, we develop a lot of tension in our neck and shoulders. And that's often, you know, if you ask any massage therapist, probably the most common that people want help with is their neck and shoulder tension. And so what's happening is those muscles are adapting to how we are holding our body for longer periods of time on multiple occasions, you know, to sit hunched over for an hour, a few times a week, not really a big deal, but when we're doing it multiple hours a day, multiple days a week, all our bodies will adapt to how we hold our skeleton basically. And that tension then can create discomfort. It can be sore. It can become tired. We may lose some strength. There's a little bit less blood flow. And the same happens in the pelvic floor where based on how we're holding our skeleton. So the muscles attached to parts of our bony skeleton, the pubic joint, tailbone, and, and our sits bones. So depending on how we're holding our pelvis, especially if it's in longer periods of time, the muscles also will adapt to those positions often, like more often than not, I would say it's tension. And even people who say, I feel like my vagina is loose, or I don't feel as much sensation during sex, or um, if they're experiencing incontinence or prolapse, they, they will interpret that as weakness, meaning there's laxity or looseness. Does that make sense? But oftentimes those people can still actually have more tension than what would be considered optimal. So really to kind of come back to your question, we we are seeking the balance as we are in all of parts of our body between effort and ease or between kind of strength and suppleness and how we get there. Like many other parts of the body is often through breath and through movement and through posture awareness, sometimes through hands-on therapy. 
That's excellent. And thank you so much for explaining that. And it's, it's funny because you're like, yeah, now you're noticing you're, you're like sitting up straight. It's funny because like now like right here in my neck, it's sore. Um, so I was like, that's really funny that you said that. Um, but yeah, I think that's an excellent like explanation when like, just like with any other part of the body with your pelvic floor, that could become tight or it's just it's a lot of tension and a lot of people can think oh it's loose or like I'm it's like I'm leaking when I'm sneezing like things like that but in reality it's more tight which I find really really fascinating and like me personally I was like diagnosed with dyspnea years ago and and through you know uh, pelvic floor physical therapy and different exercises and and stress reduction in my own you know, healing journey, the symptoms like greatly reduced. Um, and yeah, could you explain a little bit more about how you see if, can you see if there's a correlation between stress and pelvic floor dysfunction? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So kind of, you know, continuing on what I was, what I was saying earlier, the next levels, when we think about this dichotomy between feeling loose or feeling vulnerable or leaking or experiencing prolapse yet being told that you have tightness or that your pelvic floor is some people will say hypertonic or overactive people think well how can that be like how can i be tight but also be leaking and it's again we need that balance between the two and when people are maybe afraid of leaking urine so if that's happened and now they're worried that, that it's going to happen again, or if they feel like their organs are shifting out of their anatomical position. So that's pelvic organ prolapse. They may feel like, oh, I, I don't want anything to fall out of me. It's not literally going to fall out, but that's the sensation they have. Um, or maybe they had a painful sexual experience at one time. And so now they're, oh, I wonder if it's going to be painful again. So all of these things, not necessarily consciously, Maybe for some people consciously, but also unconsciously, our body is is on guard. It's on high alert. It's thinking, okay, I, I got to be in protective mode here. So we can experience leaking and then develop this tightness as a guarding, or we can experience prolapse and develop this tightness from guarding or again, from a, a pain perspective. So that's, that's a component of it. And also the stress, like the mental part of being afraid of leaking, being afraid of, you know, being embarrassed in a fitness class, let's say, or what if you're intimate with a partner and they can feel your organ differently, or maybe you're going to leak while you're participating in sexual activity. So all this other stuff is creating other angst and anxiety and, and stress. And, and our body's reaction to stress is to kind of clamp up you know, and, and it's not a sense of flow and ease and circulation and, and blood flow. It's very much a restricted, constricted state. So if we are perpetually in that state and that's, and I'm just talking about one part of life, like, right. So we also have day-to-day -day living. We have maybe children, maybe we have aging parents. Maybe we have a really stressful job. Maybe we're in a, a, relationship that we're not happy with maybe like we watch the news too much <laughs> you know what i mean there's so many things that also contribute to stress that way so the the natural response again sometimes consciously some most of the time unconsciously is a constriction when we don't have blood flow when we don't have optimal circulation when the muscles are being held in that short tight state it it, it inhibits 
function. It inhibits that flow and that ease that we are seeking and that we are looking for. And then that can, in and of itself, sometimes we have a condition that is perpetuating those symptoms, or sometimes those symptoms start to create certain conditions or challenges that might we might be dealing with, such as dyspareunia, as you were talking about it in your own body. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's such an ex- excellent explanation, especially with, you know, in life, our day-to-day life, we're in, inundated with stressful news or just social media. Things are much different now. And also what you said with posture, a lot of people now are working from home post-COVID. Everyone's like super hunched. And so that really, really affects our pelvic floor. And like, can, can like you said, you know, it could be going one way where, you know, we have this condition and then it's perpetuating mental health struggles and anxiety or the other way around where our mental health or our stress could be contributing yeah, you know, and to if, that. And I'm just going to jump in. I, I forgot to comment on something that I really wanted to, to highlight is that when we are stressed, our breath changes and we often move into a state of, um, you know, our, we're breathing more into our shoulders and into kind of our chest rather than laterally, rather than having a bit of overflow into the belly. And so the diaphragm, our breathing muscle basically works in synergy with the pelvic floor. So in an ideal world, when we take a breath in the diaphragm kind of comes down, it flattens, it widens, it's drawing air into the body. And the reaction down below with the abdominal wall is it asks the abdomen to relax, to allow for that air to come in. It it also asks the pelvic floor to expand and relax. So that's physiologically what happens on an inhalation. There's an expansion that happens. And when we exhale, the pelvic floor contracts gently, the abdomen draws inwards, the diaphragm returns back up, and that's sort of the removal of the old air that we don't need anymore. Yeah. So that's kind of how our breath works. And so that relationship between the diaphragm and the pelvic floor is really, really key to optimal function. And so if we are in a state of that constriction or fear or worry or anxiety, hunched over, we're not allowing proper that, that expansion that we need. So therefore it won't necessarily translate down into the pelvic floor to get the, the expansion that happens with each inhale, if that makes sense. So um, it's really the word constriction is, I think, such a powerful word when we think about this, because it's it it's not, yes, it's pertaining to the pelvic floor, it's pertaining to everything, constricted breath, constricted movement, constricted blood flow, circulation, all of that sort of stuff. So, um, so breath is a really, really big piece of it. Yes, you got it. I think that's so great that you also mentioned that because like, for example, my pelvic floor physical therapist recommended, you know, diaphragmic breathing. And that even that alone helps a lot with my, with my pelvic floor dysfunction and just stress levels in general. And when we are aware of our breath, especially if we're anxious or chronically in a state of fight or flight, we're going to like, our breath is going to be constricted. Like we're going to be breathing in through our shoulders, like you mentioned, and through our chest, not necessarily through our belly. And that can definitely contribute, like you said, to pelvic floor dysfunction. And to me, that just makes so much sense. It's like when we're taking in deep breaths, you know, we're naturally relaxed. We're naturally in that state of flow and ease, but the opposite of that, it makes so much sense why, you know, that's just, contributing to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's that sort of the the sympathetic system is in kind of constant overdrive. And so if you've ever done any sort of meditation or anything that talks about breath, they will always like the words are always like, come back, come back to your breath and nice, slow, deep inhales. And often they'll say longer exhales. So in for four, out for eight, or there's the box breath. There's all sorts of different philosophies as it pertains to breath. But really at the end of the day, it's about allow like creating space so we can even breathe so we can get breath into our body and and so much that we you know and we, if I think of fitness too I've been in the fitness industry now for a long time and um everything it's changing now actually interestingly enough but for so many years it was every year was just about how can we make this harder what is the hardest most intense what's the hardest this year and, and I just thought, you know, I really think we need the opposite, actually. We need fitness to be a little softer. We need more of the breath. We need more. So then, you know, it took a long time, but yoga really started to make um, a big, make a big presence. But then what happened with yoga also was, let's make it harder. Let's do yeah. yoga with weights. Let's make it power yoga. Let's make this right. And so, which I'm fine with, I'm, I'm, I don't, I, I practice those and love them myself, but really fundamentally we have a hard time with sitting still and deep, deep breathing and being quiet. We're always very much in a, we've got to do, we've got to multitask. We have all these things on our, you know, and that's sometimes even valued. People think that that's a, a, you know, a badge of honor to have that. And that can be at the detriment to some of the other things in our body. Yes, you got it. It's so funny. You took the words right out of my, my mouth with badge of honor. Yeah. With our society, we're so go, go, go. And like, I think that's a great point that you mentioned when it's like being in the, you being in the fitness industry, it's really coming back to your breath, your body, bringing you back into that parasympathetic, relaxed nervous system state, you know, and, and, you know, yoga really helps with that. And, and for me, I, before I used to have really chronic pain before I really, um, you know, went deeper into my anxiety healing, healing journey. Um, but for me, yoga really helped with my pelvic floor, like dysfunction, because it's pairing that breath, right? We're taking those deep breaths, we're turning on the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's just so important to give yourself that break, even if it's like yoga for five minutes, or, you know, mm -hmm. going for a walk for five minutes, it's starting somewhere so that we can relax our mind, therefore relaxing our pelvic floor and our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think of, um, you know, you mentioned walking, walking, in my opinion, is one of the best exercises that we, I think we would all benefit from doing more of for many, many reasons, but coming back to fitness with it being harder and more intense and, um, and, and the kind of the feminist movement, I can do that too. I can lift just as much weight, you know, that, that whole thing, which I, I, I'm not saying anything against that, but, but we have to appreciate that male and female physiology is different. We have menstrual cycles. Many of us become pregnant at certain points in our life. We have hormonal fluctuations. We go through menopause and all of those, we need to pay attention and move in ways that honors that and supports that. But if we are constantly, you know, hardcore intense that that's again i think contributing to kind of that overall constriction and then especially if symptoms pelvic floor dysfunction symptoms start to show up in there that can further exacerbate that uh that kind of constricted state 
Uh, and really, if we took some steps back, it, and it, it's counterintuitive for many people, if if they're leaking, if they feel like their organs are shifting out of position, they and we're telling them that we really want to focus on relaxation initially, relax, let go of the tension, get blood flow and circulation. That feels very vulnerable to them. But 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 I might but I might leak. And then it's you kind of come back and say, but you're leaking now. <laughs> so mm-hmm. why don't we do something? Why don't we do something different? Yeah, you got it with, with, you know, it all starts with doing something different, even though it feels scary. And that's with anything, especially with what you said. And I'd love to ask you this, like with, let's say going back to heavy lifting, mm-hmm. like with heavy lifting for women, would that exacerbate, let's say type, like it could, I want to say tight pelvic floor, but it could be like, you know, dyspareunia or prolapse or any of those that you've mentioned can like lifting heavy weights make those conditions worse? Not as a whole. So I wouldn't blanket statements say heavy lifting will make these worse. Absolutely not. We, we, especially as women, we would benefit from resistance training. My caveat there is we would benefit from education about the pelvic floor and how to honor our menstrual cycles and hormones and pregnancy and birth and recovery from those things and how to incorporate our pelvic floor into our movements so that we are mitigating any increased risk. So we don't have any research that says heavy lifting is bad for the pelvic floor or that it will give you prolapse or... And so we have research to show that people who have heavy lifting occupations. So for instance, male carriers who are carrying heavy loads for long periods of time, multiple days a week, they are at an increased risk of pelvic floor dysfunction. With resistance training, there was actually one interesting piece of research that looked at, uh, it was a like an observational study with, with uh, surveys, a huge number of women, I, b- I believe it was somewhere between three and 4,000 women and a percentage of those women experienced prolapse. Well, sorry, they already had prolapse and the the study was looking at lifting. So it was a people who were inactive, didn't exercise. Then there was a light lifting, a moderate lifting and a heavy lifting. And I apologize. I don't remember the exact uh, weight, but it was, it was heavy. It was heavy loads. And the, the people with prolapse who had the least amount of symptoms were the heaviest lifters. So we think, okay, well, I'm leaking. King, I've got prolapse. I've got pain. I better stop exercising. I don't want to make it worse. Or I'm afraid that, um, you know, something will happen while I'm exercising. So we stop moving. That arguably is worse for your pelvic floor than staying active, right? Again, we need that blood flow. We need the circulation. It's just a matter of what type of movement do we do and how do we do it? So it's introducing the principles. My philosophy is um, coming in and r- working on ABCs, alignment, breathing, and coordination. So in the alignment, we want to look at what, where is our, re- our diaphragm in relation to our pelvic floor? And if they're not kind of stacked optimally on top of one another, what muscles would benefit from strengthening? What muscles would benefit from lengthening? And then we work at releasing tension. So a lot of times that is releasing tension in the hamstrings and the calves the pelvic floor, um, the chest and the side body. So chest and side body to help encourage that rib expansion for a breath, um, getting people comfortable with letting go of their abdominal wall. That's another thing that's very common, especially with women is 
always holding tension in their abdominal wall because they want to maybe change the appearance or they think that they're doing a, a core exercise all day. So letting them be soft in their belly and then work at lengthening again, those other muscles that sometimes alter the position of our pelvis or keep our pelvis in that kind of tucked position that is not necessarily serving us in a chronically held position. We can absolutely go in a tilt and come in and out of it, but it's that varied movement that we, we miss a lot. So back to your original question, I would know we benefit hugely from lifting and from resistance training. We would also benefit from education about how to lift and how to do resistance training um, as it pertains to our menstrual cycle and also how we can kind of harness the power of our pelvic floor in those practices. That's excellent. I think everything that you said is, is amazing with lifting, with exercise. And I, I've heard as well, like if you're sitting for long periods of time and like you're not active, that's going to cause that can contribute to pelvic floor dysfunction. Yeah. A thousand percent. So it, like, as I said, our, our muscles will adapt to how we hold our skeleton. So oftentimes when we're sitting, especially if we sit for long periods of time, we could sit down with good posture. And then over time, as we, you know, we become more distracted or as we, our muscles start to fatigue, we may get more rounded up top and our pelvis may start to kind of uh, tuck under. It's almost like our tailbone starts to tuck underneath us and we're, we're applying more pressure onto our tailbone instead of on ideally when we're sitting kind of the vulva and the two sit bones are sort of your, your, your tripod, your sitting tripod in a way. And yeah, so if we start to sit more tucked and if we're hu more hunched over, our breath isn't flowing well, that relationship between diaphragm and pelvic floor is not aligned. Muscles are starting to adapt to a shorter, tighter state. We've got pressure on the tailbone that can translate up even into the SI joints. Um, and that, that shortening kind of tightening in the pelvic floor muscles in and of themselves can start to create some pain as well. So, um, so if you sit, like it's not, it's not saying sitting is bad, sitting all day is not great. Standing all day is not great. We like, <laughs> we, we, we benefit from changing positions, uh, a sit stand desk. If you can, if you have to be in front of a desk and taking movement breaks every 30 minutes to an hour, if you can take a five minute movement break to do some walking, to do some stretching, just to keep things moving would benefit so many parts of your body. Yeah. That's exactly what my own public floor physical therapist told me. She's like, every hour, at least five minutes, either walk or do some squats or stretch because even yeah. like, regardless, even like Nick, just getting rid of the whole pelvic floor, like discussion in and of itself, if we're, if we're not moving our body, that can really just contribute to other functions of our body, not doing totally. amazingly. And this is something I've been working on is like actually taking these breaks throughout the day. Um, because if we're just sitting in this one spot all day, it's just not, going to be a fun time, you know, like, as you would say for our skeletons for our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, offline, you and I were talking and I was saying that people are motivated to fix a problem that exists. They're not necessarily motivated to prevent it from happening in the first place. So a lot of the reason why these types of exercises or movement breaks don't get done is because in that moment, we don't necessarily have something to fix. So it's like, oh, whatever. It's just another hour. I'm fine. And then, and then all of a sudden it's another two hours, another three. And right. And then, so it just kind of starts to pile up. I was speaking with one of my clients today, one of my members, and she said, um, 
it was a, I do a group coaching call and she came onto the call and, and she's like, uh, I'm having trouble staying consistent. And she said, and I said, why is that? Like, what's getting in the way? And she said, nothing's getting in the way The exercises work. And it's just like medication. As soon as I start to feel better, I stop taking my medication. Cause I think, well, I don't need it anymore, but there's a, there's a course of medication that's designed specifically for a reason. And the same thing is with these movement breaks or the exercises that I prescribe is that they do work when they're done consistently, when they're done correctly. And it's the symptoms that become the motivator. And when the symptoms are gone, it's great. That's what our goal is. Cause then we have that freedom back, but the symptoms are also really good reminders, right? So we, uh, we, we, we haven't necessarily been conditioned as a society that we, we should really be thinking prevent Definitively, we we often are very reactive instead. So it's a it's a bit of a mind shift that we need we need to have have happen. <laughs> oh yes, I so agree with that because exact exactly it, and that's that's a big issue that I see in today's society. And like you know, with my clients, right? Those like I have them do vagus toning exercises and making sure that we're doing different exercises like breath work and doing it consistently, right? Like even for example you know, I'm a hypnotherapist, but even using regular talk therapy, for example, people are like, I went for a month. Why aren't I like magically healed? It's like, just right. like with anything, it takes consistency. And like, for example, with vagus toning exercises and, you know, I give clients nervous system regulation, you know, practices, things that will move us out of that state. And, and exactly that, like people will stop doing it consistently. So like, oh, like I'm doing great. But it's like, you're doing great because you've been doing these things yes. consistently and so keeping up that momentum and yeah I, I agree our society is very problem focused it's not necessarily looking at preventative care and even even for example like using mental health for example you know I have great mental health now and I'm very regulated for the most part but I still consistently see a coach, you know, at least bi-weekly. It's to continue with that preventative care to make sure that our mind and our body are still doing well and on that track to continue towards towards freedom. And I think that's just an excellent point that you made. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's uh it's tough. Like I I can I preach right now, I'm preaching to the crier because you get it, but so many people. I, I have like, I snapshot some of their comments to use kind of to help educate others. It's like, I did your challenge two years ago and I didn't stay consistent. So now I'm back or I, you know, whatever it is. And, and I hope that at some point we, uh, we switch to a little bit more preventative, but when you think about the world too, especially in this very now entrepreneur filled world that we have entrepreneurship and businesses start usually a to address a problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so what's the problem? Here's the fix. And so we're now seeing all these other people who are marketing usually some sort of a product. Sometimes it may be a service as well. That's going to fix my discolored skin or my indigestion or my constipation or whatever it is. And, um, and so we're just kind of like, we're looking, well, is there not a pill that I can take? Is there not a cream that I can just rub on? Is not this? And, you know, that's kind of what we're, what we're trained to. And actually just what I just said there, it just reminded me of something else that I'd forgotten to mention earlier, which is constipation. Mm -hmm. So constipation is a really, it's, it's very damaging to the pelvic floor. And when we are in that constricted state, 
in that fight, flight, freeze, we're not pooping. We're not in the rest and digest mode. We are in the high alert, no attention's being paid to digestion or elimination. So then we have this tightness, this constriction, there's no blood flow that's impeding our digestion. And then when we try to poop, if we even get the urge to poop, it's not coming out because our pelvic floor is non-relaxing. It's in that short, tight state. So that's another big part of managing pelvic health and kind of getting out of that initial rut of, of the tension cycle is releasing, releasing tension, getting back to the breath. Um, obviously we want to optimize digestion. That's a different conversation, but, um, but that that's constipation is constriction, right? It's all coming to that kind of constricted word. Yes, that is an excellent, excellent explanation around constipation. So it sounds like, you know, releasing tension and doing exercises that you provide, especially in just making sure that our pelvic floor health, our pelvic floor is relaxed. What are some, uh, what are some ways or typical ways that you recommend to, to your clients to relieve constipation? Mm -hmm. Um, increasing water. And that's another thing that if somebody's afraid of leaking or if they have really strong urgency as it pertains to their bladder, drinking water to them seems like the worst thing they could possibly do. Um, but, but drinking more water actually can help because when we are dehydrated and the urine becomes more concentrated, it's going to irritate the bladder and want to get out even more. So definitely we have to pay attention to staying hydrated. So I usually, you know, get people somewhere in the two to three liter a day mark. Then we have to work on the diet piece. So there's obviously fiber. So we want to look at what sort of, what, what does their diet consist of? And everybody's different. I mean, there's so many different diets. There's a carnivore diet now, which I don't understand how somebody poops on a carnivore diet, but some people poop great. So we, we have to kind of play around a little and find out what works for us. I, I'm, I tend to be on the, we need plants and fiber. I'm, to, I'm a meat eater as well. I'm not against meat at all, but we, we, I do believe that we benefit from fruits and vegetables in our diet and, and some nuts and seeds. And so, but working with somebody who can help you optimize your, your diet and find the right, um, uh, level of fiber. Cause that's the other thing too, is people are like, Oh, I'm constipated. I better eat more fiber. And then they just like, they take fiber supplements, they take psyllium. And if they're not drinking enough water, they're just going to create a block of cement in their, in their butt. And that's going to be even harder. So it's, it's a bit of, I usually start always with water first, and then we start to address a little bit of, you know, rather than take out a bunch of foods, what can we add in? So kiwis, um, dragon fruit actually is, is great apples with skin on them, uh, leafy greens, beans, prunes, dates. Those are all good things for constipation. Um, and there's something called the, I love you massage, which is a, a self massage technique that you do on your abdomen and the eye is if you take your fingers and you put them on your just on the bottom part of your left rib cage and if you were to draw the letter i downwards you would get to the top of your hip bone and so that you would do 10 strokes of the eye and then you would do for the l you would take your fingers over to the bottom of your right rib cage and now you would drag with a little gentle pressure over to the left and down so you would make the letter L and you would do 10 strokes there. And then for the U, you start with your fingers at the top of your right hip, and then you go up to the bottom of the right uh, ribs, 
across to the bottom of the left ribs down to the top of the left pelvis. So that's a, a simplified version of uh, I love you. That can help people, first of all, calm the nervous system. It's a calming practice to do, but also help get things moving if if needed. And then go for a walk. Uh, a glass of lemon water first thing in the morning can help get things moving. Uh, probiotics, magnesium, uh, citrate is the best for pooping. So magnesium citrate at night um, is typically best for constipation and yeah, and, and moving. And that's the other thing. Again, if we're sitting all day, we don't really have a lot, even if we have like an exercise practice of say 30 to 40 minutes, it's those movements kind of throughout the day that are almost more important than that 30 to 45 minute exercise class. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I recommend, I'm not a nutritionist, so I recommend working with somebody who does specialize in gut health. Those are some things that I help kind of guide people to. And then if they need more specific help to work with a, a qualified practitioner. Mm. Yeah, you got it. Those are excellent tips. Cause I find that a lot of my clients who are struggling with anxiety, you know, they're very constipated because, right, like these things are, are very interconnected. Our mind and body are not two separate things. They're super, super connected. And so bringing that yeah. awareness and just those tips, I think, are are excellent. I'm I'm not like a health practitioner, but yeah, I, I, it's like also like fruits and vegetables help with reducing cancer risk and just so many other things and just fiber and, and all of that stuff. Um, yeah can make it challenging for those yep. regularities to happen. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, um, I, I honestly, if people track their, you know, you, there's lots of different trackers, food trackers, my fitness pal is one macro factor I've used before too. And when you, I don't, I don't love tracking all the time. I think it, it can become quite disordered, but if you track for a week or two, just, just to see like, how much protein am I eating? How much water am I drinking? How much fat do I have in my diet? I just, just to just eat and track it and just see. And a lot of people are actually alarmed that they don't get enough protein and they don't drink enough water and they don't have enough fiber. Like a lot of people are kind of in the, you know, 15 grams ish of fiber, or they go over the top and they're kind of in that 45 plus, but then they don't have the water to offset it. So the, the water again is always where I start, just start increasing your water intake. And that can make big changes for so many people. That's fantastic. And what would, I know you said like, you're not like a nutritionist or gut health coach, but what would be your recommendation for like, what would be a goal for fiber to make sure that everyone's like, you know, on point with that? There's, there's, I, I interviewed somebody one time. Um, he's a, he's actually a surgeon and he, he himself transitioned to a plant-based diet. And now all of his patients, he puts them on a plant-based diet before their surgery, because he was noticing that they would have better outcomes. And he's in the camp of 60 grams a day. Then I follow other people like uh, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. He's um, a gastroenterologist. He wrote a great book called Fiber Fueled. And he's kind of in the, you know, 25 to 35 grams per day. And, and a big thing that he talks about, which I totally agree with is, and actually this other doctor did comment on this as well, is it's the diversity. So trying to eat, um, I think the other one said 60 different plants a, uh, a week. I think, I can't remember what Dr. B said, but a lot of other people are kind of in the, you know, try to get 30 different plants 
And mm-hmm. first of all, you think, oh my gosh, that's a lot. But if you if you think about like a lot of what we rice is is a plant. Uh, yeah. Sugar is a plant. Syrup is a plant. Like I'm not suggesting go eat sugar and syrup, but a lot of things that we don't necessarily, we just think about like, oh my gosh, anything green is, is the plant, but there's a lot of things that fall under the plant category, right? So it's not as hard as we think. So if we're, if we're aiming for diversity, that is helping feed all the bacteria that are in our gut that can ultimately help with things like motility and digestion. And um, yeah, so water, fiber, and a variety of plant-based foods and what, where you sit on the actual number, I think is a little bit dependent on you and on your, you know, your constitution, your body. Um, I kind of hover somewhere around the 30 ish grams per day, um, 30 to 30 to 40, depending on the day that I, that I have. Um, and that's been with lots of trial and error just to kind of figure out what it is. And now I, I do not track my food anymore. I just know what, I know what now has been working for me. And I just, I have my regular protein source, especially being now post-menopause myself. It's really important that we focus on, on protein. So making sure I'm getting my protein at every meal. And then I just switch and swap out the fruits and veggies that I eat at those meals. Yeah, that's excellent. And, and explaining, you know, the different nuances and perspectives on fiber. Cause like everyone has, has such different Um, opinions. And I think like coming back to your body, listening to your body and your intuition, what feel like going back to your constitution of your body, what feels best for your body of, you know, how much fruits and vegetables should I eat? Um, You know? um, Yeah. And I, 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 sorry, I I forgot one more thing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just I, I coming back to the pelvic floor, this is something that happened to me. So when, when we are experiencing pelvic floor dysfunction, and I'm going to, it's a little bit, um, well, it, it relates to whether you have incontinence, prolapse and or pain, but sometimes, especially if we have been struggling with constipation, once we, you know, if we wake up one day and we have a great poop and then we go, okay, what did I eat yesterday? Okay. I have this and this and this. And then we, we want to go on repeat and we're like, I'll just eat that. Cause I know that I poop really well when I do it. And we start to have this constricted (laughs) or restricted diet where we don't have the diversity or eating the same thing at all times. And there are some people that argue that that's great because it's taking some decision-making out of our day and it frees up time for other things. So yep, I I can get that. And once we know what makes us feel good and we don't have bloating and digestion, yes, that's great. However, again, when we think about the big picture of feeding those gut bacteria and and the the plant diversity, for eating the same thing every single day, it's, it's not ideal. And it can, I think, contribute to some of the, some of the gut challenges that a lot of people are facing. And sometimes, you know, it's about, it's a big conversation, but it's a, it's about inflammation. And if we're in that state of stress all the time, we're contributing to inflammation. If we're eating foods that aren't well, aren't ideal for us, that can contribute to constipation. If we're not, um, pooping every single day, that's going to contribute to constipation because we're not getting the toxins out. And it just becomes this whole, it's, it's a much bigger picture than just, oh, I just need to eat a little bit more fiber or, you know, it's yeah. And it can be frustrating because we sometimes have to, it's like two steps forward, one step back as we navigate and try different things. Um, but, uh, it, 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 uh, being on the other side now. So I, I had a, a rectocele prolapse, which is where the rectum bulges into the back wall of the vagina. And that can make pooping very challenging. Cause if you do not 
the poop can get trapped in that pocket and it's difficult to get it out. And so even though you get this urge and you know, you've got lots of poop in there to get out, it doesn't come out and it is the most frustrating feeling of all time. And then you're straining to try to get it out. And then that's damaging to the pelvic floor. And you just, again, you're in this vicious cycle. And so every time I had a good poop, I would just put it on repeat and became very constricted and restricted in terms of what I was eating. And, um, and that wasn't, I mean, it helped me manage at the time, but wasn't good from an overall health perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like also like it, it just, it can easily go into a cycle of like, okay, I, you know, didn't struggle with constipation today. What did I do to contribute to that? Oh, I ate this thing. I'm going to rinse and repeat. And then it's, yeah. then it can cause like everything you just said. And then it's like a, um, like you're stuck in, in a rock and a hard, stuck yeah. in between a rock and a hard place with that. Yeah. Yeah. And could you talk a little bit more about like pain with sex and just like maybe dyspareunia or vaginismus or what are some warning signs of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the so the category of pelvic pain has a lot of different sort of subcategories. Mm-hmm. Pain with sex could be dyspareunia. So that's literally the term dyspareunia is painful sex. Um but pain with sex to some people could be burning and irritation or from dryness or sandpaper sex. Like, so we have to kind of explore a little bit further about what actually is painful. There are some people who experience pain with touch. There are some people who experience pain with the thought of touch. There are some people that have pain in and around the, um, the, so that, the opening to the vagina that is called the vestibule. So vestibulodynia is a pain condition. So pain in that exact location. Uh, it can be pain in and around sort of the, the vulva as a whole, vulvodynia. Um, and vaginismus is more the, the, when you experience pain and sort of constriction at the thought of something being inserted. And that could be a finger, a toy, a tampon, a penis, like anything. And dyspareunia is typically like some people, the, the terminology sometimes gets thrown around a little loosely, but dyspareunia is typically more pain when there's something actually entering. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's all, and that's not even, uh, I've not done a, a whole rendition of all the different pain categories. We can have tailbone pain, we can have pubic joint pain, we can have, you know, there's there's lots of different nuances and and sort of subcategories in there. And uh I regardless of who I'm working with and regardless of what they're experiencing, pain, incontinence, and prolapse, a big part of what I believe is uh super beneficial from a pelvic health perspective is to work with a pelvic floor physical therapist. And it, in your case, it sounds like you started working with that person when you had a problem to address, which is great. That's that's why they're there. But I also promote that from a young age, we have all been told to go to the dentist once a year, sometimes twice a year, and brush our teeth and floss, and we go to have a checkup. And we go to the dentist, even if we have no problem to fix, we're going because we're trying to prevent a problem from happening. Yeah, we have this checkup. And I really, truly believe that if we were given that same information at a young age, that pelvic floor physical therapists are our 
the kind of the the health management team for our vulvas and our vaginas and our our pelvic floor muscles. And we go see them, even if we have nothing to complain about, we go see them for an, an assessment and a checkup every year. That's kind of my, I, I say that to everybody. So go, especially if you have symptoms, but even if you, even if you don't have any symptoms, go, just go have a checkup. So that's, that's one piece. I would recommend that. And, and then especially in the pain category, because there are also way beyond my scope, lots of other influences that come in to all aspects of pelvic health, but pelvic pain in particular. So I'm always recommending people work with a pelvic floor physical therapist. There are at-home strategies that people can use with uh, devices sometimes, um, exercise um, tools, so tennis balls, uh, some squishy, uh, there's one called the gorgeous ball, it's just a small squishy Pilates ball, uh, pelvic wands, so these are sort of S-shaped type devices that people can use to it's like an extension of your fingers, really. You insert it into your vagina and you can kind of navigate it around and find points of tension, potentially, almost like we have trigger points elsewhere in our body. The same thing can happen in the pelvic floor. Um, maybe we have scar tissue from previous surgeries or maybe from childbirth. And so we can use these tools to help manipulate that tissue, soften the, the adhesions, help release some of the tension that may be in that trigger point. Um, breath work, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, red light therapy, and this can be used externally or internally, um, uh, heat in and of it. So sometimes just heat, a heating pad, um, a, a heat product can be helpful for some people. For other people, sometimes they benefit from cooling or they like cooling. So there's different externally applied products that you can use that can help with both heating and cooling. Um, posture, movement, exercise, stretching, release type things. Like there's a whole host of, of stuff, but I would say I always like to start with the pelvic floor physical therapy appointment first. I think that's fantastic. Even just going back to, you know, just like we see a dentist twice a year doing that preventative care with our pelvic floor, because even as young children were taught, like, raise your hand when you need to go to the bathroom or sometimes teacher will, teachers will say, no, you cannot go to the bathroom. And it's like, and then children will stop asking and they'll stop yeah. doing those things. And it's like, and also like even going back to, to like, just with children, with children, they're in a classroom for eight hours a day sitting and yeah. they're not moving much other than, you know, they're moving a tiny bit, but it's just like thinking of that. It's like, how could that not have an impact on their pelvic floor? And, and, um, you know, just all of that programming with like, and then, and then we become very out of touch and disconnected with our bodies. We won't go to the bathroom when we want, or when we need to, we won't eat when we, when we need to, or our bodies are telling us to. And then that increases that constriction in the pelvic floor and our stress. Yep. And it's just a vicious cycle. And yep. so it's, it's really about like, like you said, connecting with the body, with those things that you mentioned and yeah my pelvic floor physical therapist is fantastic and um she really really helped me with those different things but yeah I think it's extremely extremely helpful for anyone to go mm -hmm. even if you're not experiencing symptoms um yeah. just to make sure that like everything is is functioning well like a well-oiled machine yeah yeah as I mentioned it's such a 
it's such an important group of muscles. They manage our continents. They support our organs. They support our spine and pelvis. They contribute to our sexual response. They work as a, like a sump pump action with our, with our diaphragm, like super important jobs and functions. And we've never been taught or told any of this information. And it's, and it's a part of the body we don't see. So we kind of take for granted that these things are just happening. And it's not usually until something is not working optimally and we have symptoms that we all are now suddenly aware of how much we really should be valuing this part of the body. Right. And so I think if, when we're teaching kids about menstruation and sexual education and body health, why are we not talking about the pelvic floor and introducing the concept of pelvic floor physical therapy? It, it just is a no brainer to me. Yeah. I, I'm so with you on that. I think like you said, and that's why I think your platform is so great because it's giving people that education of like, this is why you should be, you know, seeing someone like you or a public floor physical therapist, because like it also controls and contributes to so many other aspects of your life and your health. And yeah. it's just like taking that first step. And like, what would be some advice, like general advice? I know like we talked so much about advice, but like, what would be <laughs> like the top advice for someone who's really struggling with symptoms of prolapse or um, pain with sex or, or any kind of pelvic floor dysfunction. Yeah. So number one, if you can, if you geographically have access to somebody and, um, and, and I recognize absolutely there's a financial cost. So, um, but if you have access to a pelvic floor physical therapist, I would absolutely do that. And like, uh, just a sidebar, a lot of people will ask me about, you know, the perifit or Kegel balls or, you know, mm. devices and, and there's absolutely a place for devices for sure. But if you have the money to invest in a device and you are geographically located close to a pelvic floor physical therapist, put your money there first and they can help you decide if a device would even be beneficial for you. Before you put your money there, go to the pelvic floor. So that's number one, pelvic floor physical therapy, number one. Next would be optimizing your, like getting rid of your constipation. So increasing your water, optimizing your diet so that you are not constipated. Um, another one would be a practice called hypopressives. And this is an exercise technique that is, it looks a little bit odd when you first see it. Um, it looks like people are sucking in their abdominal wall and, and holding their breath. And it, it, when I first remember learning about it and started seeing it, it was counter to what I was teaching, which was expanding the belly and all this sort of stuff. But at, when you learn more about the practice and and how it's developed and and the mechanisms behind it, it it is such a beautiful complement to the other kind of breath work and and I call them the buff muff exercises that I teach people. So hypopressives, the term hypopressive means low pressure, and a lot of symptoms can come about when we aren't managing intra abdominal pressure well, and intra abdominal pressure is something that we all have. And it's constantly changing throughout the day with different activities. So me, if I was to stand up from my chair right now, I there would be an increase in intra-abdominal pressure. That's a normal response for that to happen. And if I, if my muscles, my pelvic floor, for one, was not managing that pressure well, I might leak when I stand up. And, um, or like running or lifting a heavy weight or any weight, doesn't even have to be a heavy one lifting something, pushing a door open, all of those things change pressure and, and typically increase it. And if we don't have the resilience to manage that pressure, we might experience leaking. 
arcing or potentially some bulging with prolapse. And so the hypopressive method is a series of poses that them in and of themselves, they don't, they're not high pressure. They're not, there's not a lot of intra-abdominal pressure being created. Then we do a breath cycle. And in one of the breaths, the parts of the breath cycle, we do a breath hold called an apnea. And this apnea will also change pressure, reduce pressure, create almost like a vacuum effect. And that can help with um, the, if the organs have shifted out of their proper anatomical position, it can help guide them back into or close to where they were before. It can help with incontinence and it can also help normalize tone. So if we had somebody who is, as I was saying earlier, hypertonic, overactive, the tight pelvic floor people, which is very, very common, hypopressives can actually help downregulate and let go of some of that tone as well. So anybody who is dealing with pain and potentially prolapse and incontinence, that most people know hypopressives because of prolapse, because it can be very effective for early stage prolapse. But the pelvic pain patients, they often see huge, huge changes when they start incorporating the hypopressive breathing technique as well. So that would be another one that I think is um, kind of flying under the radar right now that really can benefit so many people. Uh, and then a pelvic floor muscle practice. And so people who are experiencing pelvic pain are often, as I mentioned earlier, they're often in a constricted state or restriction and tension. And they are often told not to do Kegels. And while I agree that I wouldn't just give that person three sets of 10, 10 second hold Kegels as their homework, I don't eliminate them completely. We, we've, there's benefit in taking muscle through the range of motion. So I would focus initially on relaxation, but I want that person to understand. And I want the muscles to relearn their strategy of going through that range of motion that does help with blood flow and circulation and it helps with that muscle memory piece. So I would not remove, you know, activation completely. I just wouldn't make it the central focus initially. And that would kind of be layered in as they, as they progress and as their symptoms change. That's a fascinating point that you talked about with Kegels, like someone with a tight, um, tight pelvic floor or just hyperactive, you wouldn't like negate or take away um kegels but because that that makes a lot of sense like you want to have that muscle memory you want to still keep that activation it just wouldn't be the central focus yeah and there was an interesting piece of research that um that i thought i i, I referenced it a lot is um when people are asked to do a max contraction there's often it, it often elicits a greater relaxation response and so this study looked particularly at the pelvic floor. So asking the people to, to basically do the hardest, strongest Kegel they've ever thought about doing. And they, so just, you know, if somebody's in a, you know, hypertonic or, or told that they have a too tight pelvic floor, just verbally saying, relax, relax, try to let it go, relax, relax. It can be like, people can get very frustrated, you know, and be like, I'm relaxing. Um, but when we say do a max, then oftentimes then, you know, if we do anything, if I squeeze my, my palm, my hand as tight as I possibly can, it often is easier for me to let go than me just sitting here thinking I've got to relax my hand. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yes. A thousand percent. I think that's excellent because even like, so in my 12 week anxiety restart program, 
basically, so I have a whole session about getting them connected to their body. And I use a whole host of somatic exercises. And one of them is like each part of our body, we start with our hands Mm -hmm. tightening, Mm -hmm. holding your hands, tightening for five seconds, and then releasing. And like, it helps them notice where am I holding tension or tightness in my body? And then it feels relaxed. Like, people will come to me with chronic anxiety. They've had debilitating anxiety for years and years and years. And those exercises are extremely beneficial in getting them connected to their body and to actually relax. So it makes complete sense that the pelvic floor would be the exact same way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and, and it also highlights what it feels like to relax, to let go. Right. Cause if we're, if we're, like, am I letting go? I think I'm letting go of my mom. But then if we try to do the opposite, it can sometimes, it makes the change, the kind of the, the variance bigger. So we have a sense of what it could feel like. And that can help in and of itself teach us what it feels like to let go. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic explanation truly. Cause it's like, you, you have to, you know, for always anxious or constricted or, or tight in that, in that sense, you know, we need to know what does the opposite feel like so that we're not stuck in that familiar, constricted, tight state. We, we need that contrast. And yep. so, you know, I think like with Kegels, for example, bringing those in in that context, I think that's like an excellent, like it just, it makes so much sense. I just think that's excellent. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Well, Kim, where can people find you for people who don't know you, which I'm sure if they're listening, they, I'm sure they know you. <laughs> Um, well, vaginacoach.com is my website and all of my social media, I'm on the, all of the major platforms and it's at vagina coach. Um, so that's, that's the, that's where you'll find me. I also have a book. So if, if people are kind of like, oh, I'm not sure about this and they feel more comfortable reading something, you can find my book on Amazon or in most of the major bookstores. And it's very simply called your pelvic floor. Wow. That's fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah, everyone go get Kim's book all about your pelvic floor. I think that's awesome. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for being on the Anxiety Recovery Podcast, Kim. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks. Welcome to the Anxiety Recovery Podcast. My name is Valerie. I'm an anxiety mindset coach and hypnotherapist. You know that moment where you are absolutely at peace in the present moment? I believe that is what we are all at the pursuit of. And I want to help you get one step closer by up-leveling your health, mindset, and love for yourself. Because that happiness and lasting fulfillment can only be created and found within. So get ready for all things mindset, mental health, and self-love. I hope this serves you.